0: so I'd like to thank Remy and everybody for coming today to listen to uh, some of the work that's coming out of my lab. No, this work is, um, as it stands now, is all unpublished. This is data that we haven't published yet, but I thought we'd share with you to get some insight from this group. And um, I look forward. I know that there are students in the audience, so um, I don't know how you run it here, but if you have questions and they're burning, stop me. It's okay. I'd rather teach than preach. Um, And so... I'll get started and the title of the talk is Recognition of ER Stress Modified Human Beta Cell Antigens by a Panel of Human T-Cells. But what I'll do is I'll show some data that led us up to this role of why we think um, ER stress is important in um, driving uh, this break in peripheral tolerance that we see in type 1 diabetes. and so. Um, we know that there's a lot of dysfunction of beta cells during the progression and there's apoptosis, but we believe that something more and before that is that the ER will get dysregulated and, and, and that leads to a lot of problems. So for this audience, I really don't need to go into a lot, but type 1 diabetes uh, results from pancreatic beta cells, which are targeted and destroyed by the immune system. And um, it's usually autoreactive T cells that drive this pathogenesis. And we know that there's a strong uh, HLA predisposition to autoimmunity because the HLA load score is very high with respect to the other gene susceptibility. We know that there's a failure of central tolerance and importantly, a failure of peripheral tolerance. And it is this peripheral tolerance that we believe might be a linchpin that is going on. Once you have these beta cells, that essentially um, get into trouble. So when you look at the general pathogenesis and the progression of the cells involved, we know that there are genetic and environmental triggers that, are, that lead to beta cell dysregulation and some activation. And that beta cell gets stressed and begins to release what we would believe are misfolded proteins that are picked up by resident antigen-presenting cells. And Emilian um, Anway has done in Murian in, in system, a very nice study that shows that these are a particular type of antigen-presenting cell. But what they do is they will, um, upon pulling these um, taking up these uh, antigens, they become activated and they generate um, pro-inflammatory cytokines and reactive oxygen species. And then they ferry antigen to the draining pancreatic lymph node. And in doing so, they interact with these rogue T-cells that have escaped central tolerance and are not being peripherally regulated very effectively. And so this sort of sets the wheel. So this event has to occur. And there are a number of, of hits that occur that allow these T-cells to begin to misbehave in the periphery. This interaction leads to activation of these CD4-TH1 cells, and they produce TNF-alpha and interferon gamma, which interferon gamma can help to drive CH to become more cytotoxic and directly kill beta cell targets. And the TNF can activate APCs to become, instead of very good presenters, but more, and more of a cytotoxic macrophage. And that interaction, in conjunction with IL-1, TNF interferon gamma, is essentially a very nasty cocktail for the beta cell. And what it does is it causes the beta cell to generate endogenous ionos, and it kills itself from within. And so this is another step that happens. But what we're most interested in are what is happening with the genetic and are these environmental triggers, okay? And so when we look at environmental triggers, many of the known environmental triggers that are associated with type 1 diabetes, like uh, dynamic glucosensing leading to increasing protein synthesis of insulin, chemical exposure, reactive oxygen species, viral infection, as well as dynamic glucose sensing, they all essentially result in ER stress. Okay? And so we really hypothesize that it is the ER stress is the common denominator for all of these triggers that lead to the process of disease initiation. Okay? And so the question becomes, why the beta cell? Because the beta cell consistently responds to dynamic glucose changes. And those changes, so we know that transient increases in the blood glucose increase insulin biosynthesis by 50%. And that increase results in one million insulin molecules being made per minute per cell for a beta cell. But you're folding three disulfide bonds are formed to get that insulin to fold correctly. And that's three million disulfide bonds per minute or about 50,000 in a second. So, it's an amazing cell, but we have to realize that three million bonds formed per minute, there's gonna be some problems and they're gonna not fold correctly. And so the system is in place to deal with that, um, but mispairing of these disulfide bonds in proinsulin can lead to dysregulation of insulin processing and ER stress. And there is a system that ER stress is in place to regulate that, however, there are some instances where um, some of these proteins can get out. And what's interesting is I spoke with a friend of mine, who's a a beta cell biophysicist, and asked him really how much truly, properly folded insulin gets out. And it's really, he said, you know, it's probably about 25 to 30% that gets out, that's actually good, but it's all you need. And so that was, I didn't realize that, but it's so, I guess when you're making a million, you can get enough out that will do what it needs to do. But it's an intriguing thought that when you get below 20% of beta cell mass, you're now biobetic. So. So, so, one of the other sort of take homes that we can see when we discuss the ER stress that's in the pancreas is shown by this group who had generated um, a model where they could show that um, the pancreas using a, um, a fusion protein as a marker for ER stress. Was is XBP1 is fused to GFP, and XBP1 is an ER stress indicator that even at three weeks of age, the pancreas is highly stressed, and at 25 weeks, it's glowing it's, it's green, which means it is always under a tremendous amount of stress in order to deal with these dynamic glucosensing and the production of insulin. Um, so what we've come to sort of say is that these environmental triggers – when you have a, no genetic predisposition and you get an inflammatory event or dysregulation or some type of response that leads to ER stress, you get transcriptional upregulation of ER stress proteins, and that those are picked up and internalized by APCs. However, the peripheral tolerance mechanisms in those that are not genetically predisposed are intact. And so tissue-specific inflammation resolves with that incident. You have some damage, but you're not going to push past where you drive autoimmunity. Or on the other hand, if you have a genetic predisposition like HLA and defective central and peripheral tolerance, we would hypothesize that inflammatory response leads to ER stress, you get the upregulation of ER stress proteins and misfolded proteins in the system. They're internalized, but now you have the induction of anti-self-reactive T cells. So what we really are saying is that it's the HLA and it's the genetic predisposition in conjunction with an environmental trigger. Everybody's beta cell has the ability to make misfolded proteins and deal with them either through ERAD or UPR. It just doesn't manifest, we don't think, unless you have all the other genetics, and that's where we think it's happening. We've sort of showed that, and I don't have the time here, in that, in the mouse models, we have a T cell clone that recognizes chromogranin, and it's highly diabetogenic. If you put it into an animal, it will cause disease. But that T cell will recognize islets from BALB/c and Black 6, and there's and from um, severe combined immunodeficient animals. So the islet is pristine otherwise, mm-hmm. other than the ER stress that is occurring, and those islets are still recognized. So I think that the likelihood is, is that everybody has this going on, they just don't have the periphery seated with these rogue T cells. So we hypothesized that ER stress in the beta cell results in the formation of neoantigens, which are targeted by diabetogenic T cells and ultimately destroy the beta cell. And so the way we wanted to study this at first was we had an experimental design where we took insulinomas, a NIT1 cell line, which otherwise is not antigenic, because it's been in culture for a very long time, as well as um, murine islets. And we treated them with thapsigargin, which is a widely accepted uh, common inducer of ER stress. And it works by fluxing calcium outside of the ER into the cytoplasm, okay? And so what we did is we incubated this for one hour at 37 degrees and washed extensively to remove the thapsigargin, And then we took those cells and we mix them in a standard assay we do with nod splenocytes as a source of antigen presenting cells. With this BDC2.5 T-cell clone that recognizes a form of chromogranin, and then we did um, a standard in vitro recall assay, leaving them in culture for 72 hours, and then we measured Th1 function. And what you can see is that the ER stress within the beta cells increases recognition by BDC2.5. So what we have here on the y-axis is interferon gamma, and on the x are the different mix and match of what we can see. So the BDC 2.5 with the non-APC and media alone, we see no interferon gamma. With islets alone, we see a reasonably strong response. However, when you ER stress those, those islet cells, now the response goes up dramatically. However, if you leave the T cell out or the APC, the response is not there. So it's telling us it's dependent upon all three. This is a huge difference. So the question we asked was, would this happen in the NIT1, which is never antigenic? And so, lo and behold, when you do ER stress that, then then this BDC 2.5 does respond. And again, in the absence of T cell or APC, that that response is gone, gone. So the Sorry. question, yes? So that's really specific for A. so how about other
1: T-cells? So when I go through on the human side,
0: I'll show you, okay? So this, yeah, so this is, and there are others that have reported for insulin as well. Um, so um, what we have here is, since we knew that thapsidarmine modulated calcium and, and fluxed it out, and calcium flux is a major part of ER stress, for example, viral infection, when a virus infects, it will essentially take over host machinery and has the ability to cause the flux of the ER, um, calcium flux to come. So we, we asked, how does ER stress increase antigenicity? And we hypothesized it was this calcium flux. So what we did, and I have other data, but for the sake of time to get to the human stuff, I cut those out. What we did was we um, looked at, doing the same assay, but adding in um, a cell-permeable calcium chelator, BAPTA. And so if we treated with BAPTA an hour before we added the thapsigargin to the islet cells and or the net ones, we could see that we could reduce the antigenicity um, significantly in both primary islets and net one cells. So that told us that this was definitely, that this was calcium-dependent event that led to this antigenicity. But the other question is, is that but why? What calcium-dependent mechanism does ER stress affect in anogenesis? Well, we know that calcium-dependent post-translative form modification leads to neoantigen formation. And that there are a number of calcium-dependent enzymes that reside in the cytosol of the data set. And one of them is, uh, is tissue transglutaminase two. And it resides in the cytosol. It's activated by a flux of calcium that pushes past a threshold that leads to activation. It translocates to the ER to modify proteins. It's expressed in beta cells. And it's also been associated with breaks in peripheral tolerance and other autoimmune diseases like RA and, um, and others. So we were very interested in this because this... and Another interesting thing about transglutaminase too, is that it also has the ability to transglutaminate caspase-3. And the the literature would state that that's because it's sort of a last-ditch effort to control and block apoptosis in an effort for the cell not to end up going the full cascade to kill itself. Um, So, because I, as I was talking to Lori yesterday, teleologically it didn't make any sense to me why this would happen. What is it there for? And what we believe is happening here is very well might be collateral damage, is that these proteins are getting modified in the in the cell's effort to protect itself, it essentially seals its fate. So, we looked at ER stress-induced antigenicity and asked if it was T-gase dependent. And what you see is, what we did is we took lentiviral um, SHRNA to inhibit T-gase and the control SHRNA did nothing where we could knock down, statistically knock down, uh, T-Gase um, message levels. And that correlated with the knockdown in the um, relative interfering gamma secretion in our other acid where we look at the response. Of so we took cells that were treated um, with thapsigargin in the presence of SSH and we could block that response. Um, so the question at hand here now is we can see that this is occurring in vitro and we have ways of using this as a way of inducing ER stress. But what we wanted to know is that whether or not we could take the NIT1 cell, which has never been antigenic for the T cells, outside in the parental without a type of ER stress. Could we take that cell, and could we put it back into a physiological environment? Okay, so the NIT1 beta cell line is a low insulin secretor. It has low ER stress, low t activity, and non-immunogenic, and I didn't have time to show all that data. Um, but the question we asked then was, if we have this non-immunogenic cell, can we put it back into the animal and will the normal physiology increase insulin production, ER stress, and antigenicity? And so that's the study that we did. What we did is we took a not skid mouse and we took five times 10 to the sixth non-anagenic net ones. And we did um, a transplant under the kidney capsule And we asked, will will physiological cues like dynamic glucose sensing lead to an induction of this stress and can we see this? And then we monitored blood glucose. Because if we get this, what should be happening is these animals will eventually go hypoglycemic because the tumor is cranking out a ton of of insulin. So when we looked, these NIT1 transplant that we put in increases serum insulin levels. So if you go over time, this is day two through 16 of the transplant, we have the control versus the NIP1 carrying um, mice. And over time, you begin to see that at days 12, 14, and 16, there is a statistically significant difference in in the levels of of serum insulin in these animals. And essentially, that correlated with hypoglycemia, okay? these are the non, these are the controls, the non-transplanted, um, and they're euglycemic. However, when you, um, those that are carrying the net ones begin to become hyperglycemic, and we denote hypoglycemia hyperglycemia as uh, two consecutive blood glucose readings of less than 40. I was just wondering, isn't there any uh,
1: mechanism inside to Reverse the hypoglycemia of the mouse, they don't do it, right? I mean, you could go on or anything else. I'm surprised that when you put eyelids in a, a euglycemic mouse, you don't see this. So why are we seeing this with the, these cell lines? I
0: think that because this is an insulinoma, I don't think that all the machinery is there for for that that homeostasis. Yeah, and so and so, you, yeah, you're, they don't. They will essentially level out. So, so we saw this, and then what we did is we asked the question, if they're now secreting insulin, is there an increase in their ER stress? And there is. When you look at the parent line, there's never very much ER stress in the parent line, but when you look at the explant from those that were transplanted, now phospho-PERK is up, er 2 um, has now been, um, is now phosphorylated, so we're shutting down uh, translation and um, we looked at the T-gase activity for the enzyme that we felt was most important. And what you see is that now all of a sudden the levels of T-gase activity are up in these net ones where the parent line never had a lot of them at all because it had been in culture so long. So if all of this were true, that we believe that this calcium flux leads to an increase, that ER stress leads to a calcium flux that leads to an increase in T-gase activity, and T-gase activity is dependent upon that calcium flux that would essentially modify these antigens, then these cells should be antigenic on their own without any other st- sort of air stressor like a chemical induction. And that's what we end up seeing. So when you take these nip one x plants, they exhibit increased antigenicity. So if you titrate them, you get a great dose response in 1,000, 5,000, 10,000, and 20,000 other cells, where again, the net one parent line is not antigenic. So to summarize this portion of the data, what we see is that under resting conditions, in in a non secretory heavily secretory cell, that you get um, protein coming out the ribosome, goes to the ER, is folded, moves into the Golgi, gets packaged into a granule, and then is secreted. However, when you have increased ER stress, that ER stress leads to uh, increases in misfolded proteins in the calcium flux into the cytoplasm, which increases the cyto- cytoplasmic levels of calcium to a level that um, lead to increasing T-gase activity. That T-gase activity then leads to uh, deamination or cross-linking of protein misfolding, and those get packaged and get out. And we believe that that is what is, um, leads to recognition of these T cells. So, this is all great, this is a Neurian system, but what we wanted to know was, does this also happen in human beta cells? And so, we essentially went back and started to look at both human islets and the beta cell line uh, called Betalux five. okay? And so what we can show is that Thapsogargon, going back to the calcium fluxing ER stress inducer, increases ER stress in human beta-ox5 cells. So this is um, again measuring phospho-EIF2 and phospho-IRA1, and you can see that in these number of experiments there is an increase in the levels of these um, over what we see uh, in the controlled non-treated. And importantly, um, XBP1 levels are extremely high um, with uh, the splicing is extremely high in the presence of the ER stress inducer. So um, although we see this, that's causal, but whether or not that really leads to antigenicity is what we wanted to try to take a look at. And so the question is, is does ER stress lead to antigenicity um, in the beta cells? And so again, to do this, we went back and we modified this same experiment. Instead, we used um, primary islets, human islets, or Betalox-5 cells. And we used a panel of CD4 T cells that are DR4-restricted that we got from our collaborator, Eddie James, in, uh, at the Benaroya. Eddie had a study where he had looked at modified peptides that he had made and use those modified peptides to pull out T cells from humans that recognize them. And so he modified them by deamination, which is what transglutaminase does, and also by um, citrullination, which is what peptidylarginine deaminase does. But both of those enzymes are cytoplasmic; they reside in the beta cell, and they are calcium dependent. So during an ER stress, they will come up. So we used Eddie's lines, we followed the same protocol, took thepsic argon. and this data is really pretty new. Um, and then we treated, again, for one hour, we washed extensively, and then we used the WT51 uh, cell line, which is DR4DQ8 uh, in, the, in the presence of Eddie's different T cells, and again, we measured TH1 function. So what we see is that the ER stress within beta cells increases the recognition of these cells by human T-cells as well. And so this clone is A13, and it it was designed, it, or it was pulled out by screening a deaminated GAD-65 peptide library. And what we have shown is that when you induce a type of stress with thapsid in human islets, you see an increase in the response to this particular um, this clone, both in islets and in the beta-lox-5 cells, where otherwise there's not a very strong response. And this loss, this low level or no response really of islets is sort of a nature of the beast, is when you get islets and they're sitting in culture, over time the islet will actually become less and less antigenic because it comes back down to baseline and it's usually grown in a reasonably high amount of glucose. It, its stress levels, it doesn't having a lot of stress going on. So this told us that this particular T cell, we could see the same effect that we were seeing in mice. And in fact, we did another clone that is deaminated, this ISM2, and it also showed the same thing in that it can respond um, upon uh, ER stress induction, it responds with an increased level of interferon gamma um, and both in the Betalox5. And the Betalox5 is like the NET1, was never anagenic highly energetic to begin with. Any questions or does that make sense? So yeah? The islet response, uh, is this uh, significant? This response? No, because the error is big. So it's not significant yet. Um, and the problem is is that the islets that you end up getting, sometimes you put them, you'll get them, and that is the nature of it. And so we've done a bunch of these responses, and um, it's hard to see. where well, the beta fives, because they're aligned, you can get them to do their thing. Sometimes this, this always is the trend, but the amount of interfering gamma that's made, because these cells are on a, on a two week cycle, these T cells grow every two weeks, and then, they're, so they're essentially daughters. Every two weeks you're using a daughter of, of this group, and then eventually you have to go and pull a new thaw, because they're, after they've passed it so many times, they're not as effective anymore. So it becomes really kind of hard to do. Um, but this has always been the trend. So the primary islets that you take
1: out uh-huh. in this experiment, do they behave like the knit or the knit explants in terms of the ER stress?
0: So when, they, when they're pulled out, if you have the luxury of getting them right out of the gate, they'd be very energetic, but usually they're sent they come over you have, and, and you keep them in culture for a while and let them come back down. So even if you took if you took mouse eyelids, and we isolate mouse eyelids, and if you take them and you put them in the culture for a few days, um, they are not as antigenic either. They've sort of come down. Because the isolation-induced stress is traumatic. It really is. We, we published a book on that, about the role of isolation-induced stress. So yeah, this always seems to be the question. Is what is it that is is happening here? And, and so we've looked, and for the sake of it, um, so we've looked at these things, and we can see that that they're um, they're just not as antigenic right now. But it's sometimes they are more. It's really the wherever when you're getting them, and a lot of the time, if you get a fraction B islet prep, it contains a lot of acinar, and the acinar tissue is. Very nasty. Secretes a lot of IL six, a lot of um, IL eight, and a lot of NCP one, and it begins to drive the il So, um, so finally, we have um, we looked at this other clone because it was interesting. Since B forty five. This T cell sees citrinilated GAD, which is a different, um, which is a different modification. In that it uh, it's a peptide uh, amidine D. <coughs> peptide arginine deaminase that takes arginine and um, deaminates and forms citrulline. And this is a a major autoantigen event that occurs for arthritis. For GRP78, um, can be modified by these pads. And um, what the pads, so pads reside also, as I said, in the beta cell, and they can also, um, they're also calcium dependent. And so to beta lox fives, this this data is really new, uh, these cells do respond. So, so the question remained is, is, what if, is this really an occurrence of this ER stress-induced immunogenicity? So we looked at ER stress immunogenicity um, by looking at flow four um, calcium uh, activation. And so as this, uh, this marker Interacts with calcium and fluoresces greater. So if you have media alone with um, the islet or the beta-lox-5s, you see that there is kind of a background level at zero and 203 seconds after the addition. Um, DMSO, which is the carrier for the THAPS, you see some effect, but clearly with THAPS at zero and at 203 seconds you see this huge, this huge spike in fluorescence, indicative of a calcium Calcium flux, and what what you see also is when you look at the trace. This is the average flow for intensity. Um, you see this huge spike of, with thapsigargin addition, and then it slowly comes off. And it's interesting in that these cells do; these human um, cells have this slow drop, where murine islets and, and, um, and insulinomas are not, they, they sort of peak and come back down. And so that's, this is an interesting thing, but when you look at this, the the change in intensity, you can clearly see that there is a huge difference in intensity between the control um, and the carrier alone. So this told us that we were seeing the same sort of thing in the calcium flux that we could measure, and that calcium flux, we asked then does that lead to an increase in T-gase activity, which is what we were pinning this response onto. And it does, so when you have these cells and you measure relative T-gase activity, you see an increase in T-gase activity as compared to the controls. So we've got calcium flux that's leading to T-gase activity and um, that would drive the antigenicity that I showed you. So the question at hand now um, that we're really trying to get to is um, what can be done to target this therapeutically? Yes.
1: Did you try to lower the calcium intracellularly by giving, for example, like myfeticin or something like that? No, that's a, it?
0: cu- a good question. That
1: would. Now, and the second question is, can you, I mean, you're talking about T-cell plums, right? Is there any way that you can get the T-cells right? from the newly lost of type 1 diabetic and see if they have the same kind of mis-
0: yeah, so we're, we're trying to do those with Eddie, and so Eddie pulled these original lines from patients. Perfect. Yeah, they were from patients. He's just carried them. But the problem is is that you have to be able to carry them for enough time in order to stabilize or in order to know at least V beta profile and ask if you have One particular type of V beta. Otherwise, there's always the issue of um, allergy. I
1: mean, because in my mind, there's a huge difference between the type 1 diabetic who is a 2 year old. Yeah. That is, one type 1 diabetic who is a 10, 12, 13 year old. So there's something about genetics and the beta, the T cell, now some the very young kids who present with diabetes that the older kids, so I'm just wondering if somebody who presents very young in life and plenty of those, something about the immunogenesis of that particular piece that may be interesting to look at. No, I think
0: it's an incredibly cool question. We We would, it would be, it's doable and we would, you would have to be able, you would sort of shoot yourself in the foot a little bit because you would have to be able to isolate peripheral blood T cells. I think you can that. Can't. Yeah, but, but you would take them. But you would you would have to screen them on antigens first in order to in order to use tetramers to try to sort them away from whatever else is there. You know because they're because the allo response is so high that if you used an islet that was that that was not allo. Compatible, then you would—you don't know whether. Uh, or not. I mean, I say in the yeah, but it's so you can just do a few rounds of screening with the autoantigens and ask. But it's an interesting question because I think it actually leads to the point of what's the original sin—is the original sin a yeah. modified antigen, yeah. or is the original sin to native antigen, and that native antigen original sin drives an inflammation that leads to spread. To these energies, I don't on, know. Yeah, based on your data, you, know, you have the insulinoma
1: that the glucose levels are very low, so it's not glucose at your model, right? It's insulin. right? insulin. right, and that's not what you necessarily see in, in
0: a type one at, at the at, at, at the beginning, right? right. But the, yeah, but the question is, is you're right? Is what what is the original sin? And so um, it almost so, so for us. It's the question of of why, and and you're right. If if we know what the sin is, then we might be able to go after those types of processes, which is what we're trying to do here. But that's something we should definitely look into. And I think it might be doable once the humanized mice get better. I mean, and they're incredibly good now, but they sort of... um, The T-cells struggle to get where they need to go because the addressins and adhesions are still different. So, um, But we asked the question, what, what can be done to target this therapeutically? And so um, what we looked at was inducing autophagy with, with Carbazepine which is a drug that's FDA approved and it's used for neurological disorders um, because it enhances autophagy. And uh, it does this in several diseases. And so, um, so autophagy allows orderly degradation and uh, recycling of cellular components. So we thought, if we have, if we could bolster the ability of the beta cell to help itself out and clear these misfolded proteins even, even to a greater extent, could we have an impact on that? And so that's what we asked: is, is can autophagy be exploited to reduce beta cell immunogenicity, reduce our stress, and recycle these neoantigens faster? And so. Um, the data that we have is, is brand new. as uh, the first ex- couple of experiments. And and what you see is that, that CBZ reduces ER stress and reduced immunogenicity. So the experiment was set up that we treated with um, five micromolar Thaps, but an hour before we gave CBZ and asked then, when you induce the ER stress, what you see is that for all of these human T cells, those two that are uh, um that are dependent upon a modification by transbutaminase, C D Z is capable of knocking that response down, as well as the pe- uh, peptidal arginine the citrinolated one. And so we're interested in further um, uh, trying to understand <clears throat> what the full mechanism of this is. Is it more than just autophagy? And can we use this in combination with other therapeutic derivatives? Um, as adjunct therapy to try to design strategies to prevent the progression, as you had said. If you can get very early, do we have a chance? And so um, so, so in conclusion, beta cells are particularly susceptible to ER stress. Uh, Their physiological clues like glucose sensing and insulin secretion um, keep it uh, under a tremendous amount because it has to make so much insulin. Okay, and the environmental triggers like viral infection, uh, chemicals, and in reactive oxygen species also uh, perturbate and drive more of this. And we don't know whether or not it is the cause or the effect and what the initial hit is. UF um, ER stress contributes to immunogenicity and the formation of neoantigens through aberrant post translational modification. And there are therapeutic opportunities um, to clear beta cells from neoantigens by increasing um, autophagy with carbazepine. So what we'd like to look at in the future is we're we're gonna continue to collaborate with Eddie um, to further explore the mechanisms of immunogenicity in human beta cells of the, as we had talked about, about about the how, when, why do um, antigenic PTM peptides occur, um, and evidence of antigenic peptides in patients. We wanna identify Uh, PTM peptides in human samples, and we're going to look at N-pod samples by immunohistochemistry. We also want to see if we can recapitulate these studies in humanized mouse adoptive transfer experiments because we've been able to show that Eddie's T-cells actually can see the same antigens um, from mouse islands. And so we might be able to... So we have um, these what are called drag mice that are DR4 uh, expressing... um, the humanized animals, which are NSG, so they're gamma chain knockout on an MRD background. And um, they express the human DR4, which are what Eddie's T cells are restricted to. And we're going to try to put those in and ask whether or not they, um, if we can induce, whether or not they will go out and target those T cells. So we'd like to try to do that. We'd like to know how this knowledge um, begins to inf- inform for treatment in, in using CBZ to reduce ER stress, to re- um, reduce neoantigen in cells, and whether or not we can do that in combination therapy with ER stress reducing agents. Um, and so this work was all done by my postdoc, uh, Megan Murray, um, in collaboration again with Eddie James. And with help from my other postdoc, Gina Coudrier, a graduate student in the lab, and my technician. And so uh, at this point, I'll stop and take any questions. Uh, Thanks for your time. So I know the nod's not a perfect model, but say you block the activity of T gates or delete T gates in the nod or actually even after onset you should like as soon as they started to can yeah so that's a good question so dave cerez has actually made to gase nods for um well because dave cerez can make any he anymore because he's dave cerez <laughs> no he's a great guy though. he's gonna let us have him he was making them for um for studying celiac huh. right because t-gase is the antigen um Um, And so we're going to get those, and we're going to ask that question, is if we knock them out, if we breed them back to rip, crea, or nip, do we um, lose that? And we have, right now, we have um, t gase knockout islets that we've been picking because we finally got the cross made, and so we're going to test that. I know that Katie has shown for chromogram, if you knock chromogram out, those animals don't get diabetic. We want to ask whether or not if we knock down that enzyme, because we've always been about the, the why. Why is this occurring? And so, the other interesting question we would like to do with those mice is ask whether or not it's only the beta cell, or is it, what happens if you knock this out in the antigen-presenting cell? So if you bring it back to CD11C, and you blow T-gase out in those cells, what happens? And, and so, that's what we're trying to do in that regard. And have you used that drug I'm not. not yet, not yet. Now this is this is fresh. I'll bring fresh data for you. Mm.
1: <laughs> yeah. Now we would like to. Uh, so
0: CBZ treatment. So
1: how does it induce apoptosis? I Autophagy. Mean, uh, it brings up.
0: It just enhances all these uh, autophagic proteins that come up and f- to form. So, That's essentially what it's doing. Do you expect that we might have a reduced secretion of insulin with this treatment? That is a good question, and that we're, we will have to take a look at that. I don't know if we will or not because I don't think it's 100%. I, what we're hoping is that it, it, we're hoping that we can get to a level that we would just be able to sort of drop down all of this, um, drop down the majority of these misfolded proteins. I don't think we're going to get there because there's apparently a lot of dysregulated and misfolded protein. And Peter Irvin had a beautiful paper where he he would he expressed some uh, some of these mutations that uh, occur in insulin in infants in in IELTS. You could show that it disrupted a lot of the ER function in general. So I, I don't know. I don't know if we're going to be able to, to get it all the way there. Yeah, question. Yes, I have a couple
1: of questions. you so uh, using uh, other ER not only topsygadian, I'm saying this because topsygadian is a very particular mechanism. Right. It's also been reported to inhibit uh, uh, octogen itself. So I was wondering that it could be also that the octogen in your model is what is really important um, in this new antigen uh, formation. And uh, you know, there are other there are stressors such as metamycin right. like, you know, or.
0: Yeah, so ticinomycin in our hands, because it hits more of the Golgi, we didn't see a huge effect. And we're going back to do cytokine, the cytokine mix. And so we're going to look at the cytokines, and we're also collaborating with Mark Horowitz in Vancouver, who is um, an expert in um, uh virus and in diabetes and infecting eyes, and we're going to look at that as well to see, because Coxsackie has a very beautiful protein called 2B that it makes in order to punch a hole in the ER, and it does that in order to cause the flux and induce ER to go through ER stress in the UPR so that it shuts down host translation, and then it can, it can essentially take over and utilize host machinery much easier, but it doesn't want to kill it, so it does it in a slow way, so we're looking at that as well. But I agree with you that, that we, we need to look at these other things. The problem I have with the cytokines coming in is that when cytokines were already in the beta cell or in the pancreas, a lot of things have happened. You know? There's a lot going on if interferon gamma TNF and IL one are already there. So the immune system is already mobilized. So we're trying to we're trying to see if whether or not just on their own, will the beta cells seal their own fate. Because essentially I look at them as this very incredible unionized factory and they make insulin and they make it very well, they can do it and and they crank it out but if anything perturbs the system then, then, then the assembly line sort of breaks down. For the older people like me in the audience, it's like that Lucy episode where they make that chocolate factory. And they, <laughs> and they have to, and, and as they speed it up, they can't deal with the chocolate, and so they're eating it and pouring it everywhere. This is kind of what I think is happening: is this sort of scenario occurs, and so the systems are in place to back it up. So, go ahead. Yes, my, my second question was: uh, your hypothesis is that you are talking
1: about this presentation of transmembrane uh, proteins in the VR resulting causing the of proteins, mm-hmm. and these new antigens would be. Have you tried to, for example, um, chemical chaperones
0: to really revert that? And yeah. So, so they have done it with tutica and the other new one, and and they worked pretty effectively. And so we're we're, at, we're wondering if we can add those chemical chaperones with CBZ, and and actually we have another molecule that stabilizes um, and blocks uh, a lot of ER, a lot of oxidative stress that could be occurring. And so. We're sort of trying to take a page from from the guys in cancer and HIV, where it's combinatorial therapy. We're really going to try to look at that. But that's a really really good question. Yeah, they're doing it, and it, um, Desir Ozerik's lab has done a substantial amount of that work, and he's very good at it. Yeah. Yes. You might have touched on it. I'm sorry, I was late. But um, can you induce this ER stress? Uh, in vitro and in vivo with hyperglycemia and you show production of the new hepatitis So we're trying to look at that in the high glucose methods, yeah. So we're, we're going back and doing that in the human, for the human stuff, to see whether or not that will occur. Because you're absolutely right. You have to ask whether or not that's, that's going to occur. But what we do know, and not so much in the human, but, but even if, if you just pull the islets out of, of mice, because you have the luxury of having them, they are energetic. And so the study we did where we put the net ones back in, when we put the net ones back into the not skids and we just let physiology do what it does, that essentially induced them to become energetic without any other stressors. So, so I, I think the likelihood is is that that will, I think we'll be able to see that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. You mentioned that two days that, that
1: once it's activated, it goes- yeah. I wonder if this process, why it's
0: important or it's not important for the increase of antigenism? So I think that it is, and I think that because it butts up to the ER, we're not exactly sure why, but a lot of that work had been done when you look at um, for amyloid and misfolding of, of, of plaque, and, and so T-gaze plays a role there as well, right? And so. Um, it definitely does butt up to ER and, and I don't know if we could inhibit it from getting there then we might be able to have an effect. That's a, that's a really good question. Yeah. And this, it's
1: it's targeting proteins. Are they where are they located mostly? The ER protein or cytosolic or
0: nuclear protein? The targets that they're hitting? Yeah. yeah, so they would they interact in the ER. They would it interacts in the ER from what we can understand. And that would occur which is then it then they come through and they go into the Golgi where they they get into the, they form a secretory granule. So they're coming out of the granule, coming out in the granule misfolded. And so we think that, and so, and and we've tried to do a substantial amount of work in purifying these proteins and trying to run them by mass spec, and it is not an easy task. It's not as easy as we thought it would be. We're going to go back and try this with GAD, and we've gone back with chromogranin and tagged it with, um, Using an iris, so we don't bother the protein itself, and we have a small uh, c mic tag because there aren't very good, um, which you would think there would be, there aren't very good chromogenic antibodies, which is insane. We've tried, spent half the half my money buying buying no good antibodies, so we're going to try to tag it and do it that way. Yeah, it's a good question. Anyone else? Well, thank you. those are all good questions. Thank you for your time.